Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's top stories. Putin blasts the West and withdraws from a nuclear treaty in a major address. Kevin McCarthy gives Tucker Carlson January 6th footage. Israel's Knesset passes the first reading of a judicial reform. Eight police officers are killed by suspected rebels ahead of Nigeria's election. The Russian economy and banks are reportedly performing better than anticipated. Final arguments begin in Elon Musk's $56 billion Tesla pay plan trial. A South Korean court recognizes same-sex couples' rights. Prosecutors downgrade Alec Baldwin's charges in the Rust shooting case. A fifth person is confirmed to be cured of HIV. And Venice canals run dry amid drought concerns. In our top story today, we reach day 363 of the Ukrainian conflict and Putin blasts the West and withdraws from a nuclear treaty in a major address. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Greek reporter, TASS, Associated Press, Al-Arabia, and Ukraine Forum. In a State of the Nation address on Tuesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin sought to justify the invasion of Ukraine by alleging that the U.S. and NATO sought to destroy Russia when they launched not just a military and information, but an economic aggression against Moscow. They have not achieved success in either of these areas, he said. The initiators of the sanctions are punishing themselves. Putin further alleged that the Russian government submitted draft treaties on security guarantees to the U.S. and NATO in December of 2021, three months before the invasion, but said they were ignored in favor of enacting plans in Ukraine that threatened Russia's security. We aren't fighting the Ukrainian people, Putin said, before repeating the grievances that Ukraine's population have become hostages of the Kyiv regime and its Western masters, which have effectively occupied the country. The speech, which also addressed a range of domestic issues, additionally announced that Russia would suspend its participation in the last remaining nuclear treaty with the U.S., the so-called New START Treaty, signed in 2010. In a press conference following Putin's speech, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said he regretted Russia's decision, adding that it makes the world a more dangerous place. I'm calling on Russia today to reconsider its decision to suspend its participation in the New START agreement. We have to remember that this is one of the last major arms control agreements we have, he said. Meanwhile, after visiting Ukraine a day earlier, U.S. President Joe Biden arrived in Poland on Tuesday, where he also gave an address later in the day. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said, We did not set this speech up as some kind of head-to-head. This is not a rhetorical contest with anyone else. This is an affirmative statement of values and vision for what the world we are both trying to build and defend should look like. On the ground, at least six civilians were killed and 12 more injured in Russian shelling of the Kherson region on Tuesday. One civilian was also reportedly injured in Russian attacks on the Kharkiv region over the past day. All right. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Let's begin the narrative spins with the pro-establishment narrative from AP News. 
Despite using it to try to defend his unprovoked war of aggression, Putin's address repeated a litany of disproven grievances against the U.S. and NATO while failing to take any responsibility for his illegal actions in Ukraine. The speech has not helped his case on the international stage. And here's a pro-Russia narrative from TASS. As Putin rightly highlighted, Russia tried to engage the U.S. and NATO on security guarantees before the conflict started. The efforts were ignored and followed by a further buildup of NATO presence on Russia's borders. The blame for this conflict lies with the West for flagrantly posing an unacceptable security risk that prompted a defensive military operation. And we occasionally have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 12% chance that there will be more than four deaths between Russia and NATO forces outside of Ukraine before July 1st of 2023. It's starting to sound like uh, there's a lot of reaching and backtracking going on. This thing has gone so far. I don't even know where it's going to go now. What's the point? Like, I don't know, it doesn't appear. Like... At first, I can understand that Russia probably thought they were going to rush in. It was going to capitulate and then they would be able to take over. That obviously didn't happen. Now, if they're going to take over, they have to garrison this place, which it doesn't feel like they're going to be able to do in any kind of reasonable time frame. So yeah. what's how is this going to end? It's just going to go on forever. I understand why they would be really hesitant to back down and because what that would mean politically and, and you right. know, in terms of perception, uh, I, if I were them at this point, I wouldn't probably choose to back down either. But now, so right. where does that where does that leave us? Well, you, uh, I mean, you could still come forward and say, like, yeah, I, I have created this great, um, you know, a treaty with the West to make sure that, you know, I have ensured the safety of the world. Vladimir Putin says he wants to be a, a, a guest on our show and you're going to get to read the news with him. Would you want to do that or would you say no? I mean, I don't think I could say no, but I, I would be like, Scott, you're going to interview him, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm busy. I'm busy that day. Um, He's like, my wife says, uh, you, Melissa, you're her favorite. So. You're everyone's oh, favorite. No. <laughs> I don't blame him. You're my sure. favorite too. Ah, shucks. Do you think that it would be morally bad to offer him the platform or would oh, you, would it be question. morally bad to not offer him the platform? It can go kind of go either way. Wow. I mean, I think there need to be a big internal meeting. Knee jerk. Yes. The closer we can talk to someone, the more we can understand them. So that's kind of my baseline uh, logic, you know, yeah. it's so much more convoluted than that in reality, but. A new report claims that McCarthy has given Tucker Carlson January 6th footage. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Breitbart, Forbes, Daily Caller, Axios, CNN, and Red State. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, has reportedly given Fox News host Tucker Carlson access to 41,000 hours of footage from the January 6th Capitol riots. Sources have told Axios that Carlson's team sorted through the video last week and that the show will begin airing footage in the coming weeks. Carlson told Axios that the footage would reveal what actually happened on January 6th, hinting that it could provide an alternative, more pro-Trump version of events from that day. McCarthy previously promised to release the footage on January 12th, just days after becoming Speaker earlier this year. During that press conference, he said, I think the American public should actually see all what happened instead of a report that's written for a political basis. 
while Carlson has called the riots a forgettably minor outbreak by recent standards, and Washington a regime of secrecy and deceit, the January 6th Congressional Committee hearings did play numerous excerpts of the footage last year. McCarthy reportedly didn't consult House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, about the footage, all of which the now-defunct January 6th committee had access to, but refused to release for security reasons. He allegedly did not consult GOP leadership before making his decision per CNN. Though it's yet unclear whether McCarthy will release the footage to the general public, Democrats will likely be preparing a defense against the claims Carlson will make on his show. Believe it or not, Scott, we have a couple of political spins on this story, and we'll start this round with a Republican narrative from PJ Media. The fact that Democrats from the January 6th kangaroo court are crying foul over this news makes it all the more exciting. While they cite security reasons for not wanting Tucker to have access to the footage, they're actually afraid the surveillance video will show how fraudulent their hearings were. By giving this footage to the most prominent news host in the country, McCarthy has given the American people a chance to decide for themselves whether January 6th was an insurrection, a harmless mob, or even a government false flag operation. And the Democratic narrative comes from Salon.com. Beyond potentially obstructing ongoing federal investigations into the insurrectionists, the new Republican majority has chosen to give a far-right conspiracy theorist access to surveillance video so that he can carefully curate election-denying segments of late-night television. After a lackluster midterm election performance, the GOP has no substantive legislation to offer. So, instead, they'll continue living in the past and try to again persuade their voters that when they lose, it's because of a government conspiracy against them. So, I think there is one way to make this fair, and that is to immediately release the 41,000 hours of security footage to the public. That way, you know, the right uh, internet dweebs, I say that with affection, can go out there and make sure that Tucker Carlson isn't just cutting together what he wants. If this was the Twilight Zone, there would be 41,000 hours of footage, but they all had the lens cap on. Israel's Knesset passes the first reading of judicial reform. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of Israel, CNN, the Jerusalem Post, Al Jazeera, the New York Times, and BBC News. Early on Tuesday, Israel's Knesset, its state legislature, passed the first of three readings to turn a divisive plan by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing coalition to overhaul the country's judiciary into law. The set of bills was approved by a vote of 63 to 47 in the 120-seat Knesset as the ruling coalition, which has a majority of 64 members, pushed for the legislation despite protests against the changes over the past seven weeks. Some 60,000 people gathered on Monday outside the Knesset to demonstrate against the judicial reform as debate was set to begin in the evening, with a group of them attempting to break into the building. Hours earlier, protesters blocked major highways and interchanges across the country. The proposed legislation intends to change the composition of the panel that nominates judges, giving the government a de facto majority, and prevent courts from ruling against the basic laws, Israel's quasi-constitution. As these bills passed their first reading, they will now return to the committees for further discussion before being voted on two more times to become a law. 
This process may take several weeks or even months. While Israel's Justice Minister Yariv Levin claimed opponents are seeking to carry out a coup against Prime Minister Netanyahu, the country's President Isaac Herzog warned that Israel is on the brink of a constitutional and social collapse. Okay, well, we have a left narrative spin on this story from the New Statesman. This move by Netanyahu and his most extreme allies shows that, despite a legitimate right shift in the electorate, the prime minister actually has less control over his coalition than once thought. Facing scrutiny over bribery and fraud charges, the only way Netanyahu can maintain his power is by ripping apart Israel's long-standing democratic institutions and criminalizing judicial dissent. We are watching an authoritarian coup in real time. And there's a right narrative from the Jerusalem Post. Despite the left arguing that these judicial reform plans threaten democracy, it's actually quite the contrary. The self-appointed Israeli Supreme Court has autocratic, unchecked powers that allow it to nullify and rewrite democratically enacted laws and policies on the basis of subjective justifications. Therefore, this move is crucial to curb the court's undemocratic excesses and protect the rule of law. Let's continue this narrative full house with the pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye. Though there's much talk from the Israeli left that the country's democracy is under threat, for Palestinians it has never been a democracy. Apartheid and democracy are completely mutually exclusive. And the only reason Israelis are protesting in the first place is because they want to maintain the system that has oppressed Palestinians for 75 years. And we'll end with a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. There's a 50% chance that Israel will have a national election for Knesset in 2023. Mayhem in Nigeria as suspected rebels kill eight police officers ahead of the election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Associated Press, The Premium Times, Sahara Reporters, TRT World, and Voice of America. At least eight police officers have reportedly been killed in separate attacks in recent days by suspected separatist rebels in southeastern Nigeria, less than a week before the upcoming presidential elections. Local police sources said that four officers were killed on Monday in an attack on a police station in the southeastern Anambra state, and four others over the weekend when assailants opened fire on the officers and detonated explosive devices. Police blamed the killings on a separatist group called the Indigenous People of Biafra, along with its militant wing, the Eastern Security Network. However, the group has repeatedly denied any involvement in recent deadly attacks in the West African country. Meanwhile, Anambra State Police claimed that three suspected members of these groups were killed and two suspects were arrested in a combined police and military operation. Nigeria faces numerous security threats nationwide, and the recent surge in deadly violence comes as more than 90 million Nigerians are set to elect a successor to President Muhammadu Buhari, who is not running again after two terms in office. On Monday, the Nigerian Electoral Commission announced that voting will not be held at 240 polling stations in 28 states due to a lack of registered voters caused by insecurity. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll begin the round of spins with Narrative A from DW. In addition to the uptick in election-related violence, Nigeria has been ravaged by Boko Haram and a wave of kidnappings. But the problem goes deeper. Poverty is driving young people into the arms of separatists and local gangs, with corrupt politicians fueling the violence for their own benefit. 
Until those in power address the problem of unemployment and hopelessness, elections will not bring peace to Nigeria. And Narrative B comes from the Global Observatory. Nigeria should not be characterized by simplistic notions of election violence and widespread insecurity. Since it emerged from a military dictatorship in 1999, it has become a vibrant democracy on the international stage. Moreover, electoral reforms during Buhari's second term have increased public confidence in the electoral process. And it is also a good sign that the polls will not be based on religious criteria. If Nigeria continues on the path of democracy, it has a chance of overcoming violence. Russian banks and the Russian economy perform better than anticipated this year. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, BBC News, The Moscow Times, and Telesur. Despite sanctions imposed by Western nations in response to the war in Ukraine, Russian banks have reportedly rebounded by conducting internal business with the state, buoyed by the country's growing defense budget and record corporate account surplus. Following the start of the war, Russia's banking sector initially saw a combined 1.5 trillion ruble, or $20 billion, first half loss in 2022, but reportedly rebounded to a 203 billion ruble profit for the year. Meanwhile, internal and foreign entities alike predicted a double-digit contraction for Russia's economy last year, with Russia's economic ministry predicting a greater than 12% decrease in the gross domestic product, and the World Bank predicting an 11.2% contraction in April of 2022. Instead, Russia's economy reportedly only shrunk by 2.1% in 2022, largely attributed to the country's oil market. While energy exports to Europe plummeted, Countries like India and China bought the available oil, albeit at a discount. Russia's statistics agency Rostat published the data on Monday ahead of President Vladimir Putin's highly anticipated speech to parliament. Some analysts, however, have questioned Rostat's figures. In his annual State of the Nation address, Putin said the West underestimated Russia's economic strength and added that the participation of the ruble in Russia's international transactions doubled compared to 2021. He also says that Russia and its partners are working towards a safe system of international transactions independent from Western currencies. All right, we have a pro-Russian narrative from RT. Despite the entire Western world seeking to destroy Moscow and its economy, it stood strong and weathered the economic war. Western countries underestimated the strength of Russia, which is a fast-adapting nation that will not only endure but will also continue to innovate. And an anti-Russia narrative from Fortune. While its economy may have fared better than some estimates, Russia still faced a loss due to its war in Ukraine, which has been a complete disaster on a multitude of fronts. Since the war, Russia has become an economic afterthought seeing over a thousand global companies leave, in addition to crippling oil sanctions that sunk its energy revenues. Despite claims to the contrary, Putin did irreparable damage to Russia's economy. And we've got another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 50% chance that Russia's nominal GDP will be at least 1.48 trillion U.S. dollars in 2023, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Well, Melissa, I think Russia was exactly as uh, formidable as maybe everyone thought, except not in the way they thought. Maybe less formidable militarily, but more formidable economically. You know, on that note, 
I'd like to just let everyone know that I did a lot better than predicted as well, financially. But militarily, not as good as you expected, personally. Final arguments are scheduled in Musk's $56 billion Tesla pay plan trial. Here are the facts as agreed upon by business insider Reuters, Teslarati, and Bloomberg Law. On Tuesday, lawyers for Tesla CEO Elon Musk and shareholder Richard Tornetta were scheduled to begin presenting their closing arguments to a Delaware judge in the trial over Musk's $56 billion compensation package from Tesla. This comes after a five-day trial last November during which Musk testified about the inception of the 2018 pay package, whether its performance goals were difficult to achieve, and whether it was precisely described to investors. Tornetta claims the CEO shouldn't have been able to dictate the terms of the compensation plan, which allows him to buy 1% of the company's stock at a deep discount for every milestone achieved. Tornetta is seeking to have it fully rescinded or revoked. Tesla hit 11 of the 12 performance and financial targets while its value briefly skyrocketed to $1 trillion in 2021 from $50 billion when the package was arranged. The judge could come to a decision as soon as Tuesday determining whether Musk commanded the board's approval of the compensation plan. She's the same judge who presided over the showdown between Musk and Twitter last year when he attempted to terminate a $44 billion deal to take over the social media platform. Musk eventually completed the purchase. All right, those were the facts. You heard it, and here are the narrative spins. We'll start with Narrative A from BNN Bloomberg. This compensation plan is clearly excessive. Musk has benefited from his influence over the board's committee, which falsely claimed it had no conflicts of interest and been rewarded for his part-time management role at Tesla, largely on the grounds of milestones that had already been achieved when shareholders voted. And Narrative B comes from Tesla Roddy. This compensation plan was granted to Musk, who took on a high risk to achieve high reward because of his paramount role in Tesla's success. Though Tesla skeptics ridiculed his decisions at the time, Musk's management has resulted in the car maker increasing its value from $59 billion to $600 billion and achieving almost all its stipulated performance targets. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that Tesla's market capitalization will be at least $1.94 trillion by January 1st, 2030. $59 billion to $600 billion is, is pretty huge, and we have seen the popularity of those cars on the West Coast. Oh, my God, they're everywhere. And, you know, even underlining it further, they're kind of everywhere on the East Coast, too. So there you go. It's what? not just... It's not just over there. Yeah. Yep. Say what you will about Musk, but as a mother, the Model 3 actually got one of the highest safety crash test ratings. Really? Yeah. For 2023. I I think I'm a little skeptical of the gullwing doors. That doesn't, that's Agreed. not a selling feature for me. No. Because I'm going to do something. I, they must have some kind of technology that keeps you from opening that in your garage and smashing them. Cause that's, I saw someone in a parking lot the other day at the library and they were opening their Tesla doors and they were, you know, they were pointed at the moon. So they were, uh, you know, if you were in a, inside, they would be smashed. They must have something. A South Korean court recognizes same sex couples rights. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC news Reuters, the guardian, Al Jazeera, 
RTHK, and The Independent. On Tuesday, the Seoul High Court ruled that same-sex couples are entitled to spousal coverage under the National Health Insurance Services, or NHIS, and that denying insurance coverage based on sexual orientation amounts to discrimination. In its judgment, the appellate court noted the spousal coverage system under the NHIS was not just for families as defined by law, and protecting the rights of minorities is the biggest responsibility of the court as the last bastion of human rights. The landmark decision overturned a lower court ruling in January 2022 that a same-sex dependent was ineligible for benefits as the union isn't considered under the country's common law marriage statute. The decision stemmed from a lawsuit filed by So Song Wook in 2021 against the NHIS after the state health insurer revoked spousal coverage for his partner Kim Young-min as they were a gay couple. This ruling, now headed to the Supreme Court, is the first time the country has recognized the rights of a same-sex couple. The NHIS has indicated that it intends to challenge the decision. While South Korea doesn't legally recognize same-sex marriage, gay relationships aren't criminalized. Amnesty International brings us a left narrative spin. Though there's still a long way to go to end discrimination against the LGBTQ community, the ruling is a positive step for LGBTQ rights as it moves South Korea closer to achieving marriage equality. Societal norms have changed considerably since these laws were put in place, and it's only suitable that the law changes to keep up with the times. And here's the right narrative from the Korea Jungong Daily. While everyone, regardless of sexual orientation, should be protected from discrimination, this ruling directly contradicts South Korea's legal and moral stance on traditional family and marriage, the bedrock of its society, and likely won't hold up in the Supreme Court. Prosecutors downgrade Baldwin's charges in the Rust shooting case. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The New York Times, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, and BBC News. Actor Alec Baldwin will not face the possibility of enhanced sentencing in a case involving the fatal 2021 shooting of cinematographer Hanya Hutchins on the set of the film Rust, according to a court filing that was made public Monday. Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the armorer on set, were each charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter. Their lawyers argued that the Santa Fe County, New Mexico district attorney had incorrectly charged them under a new law that took effect after the shooting. The initial charges against Baldwin and Gutierrez-Reed were punishable by up to five years in jail because of a firearm enhancement penalty that went into effect in 2022. The reduced charges are punishable by up to 18 months in jail and a $5,000 fine. Involuntary manslaughter is a charge brought when unintentional negligence results in death. A spokeswoman for the district attorney said Monday that the decision to amend the charges against Baldwin was made to avoid further litigious distractions. Prosecutors filed the amended charges Friday, according to court filings. Hutchins, 42, died in the hospital after she was shot in the chest by a prop gun fired by Baldwin, whose lawyer, Luke Nikas, said the actor had no reason to believe there was a live bullet in the gun or anywhere on the movie set. Thank you, Scott, for the update on that story. We'll start these narratives with Narrative A from USA Today. Even if this killing was accidental, Baldwin and Gutierrez-Reed's actions were still criminal. The pair were horrendously negligent in how they handled the gun. 
Hutchinson's tragic death was avoidable, and those responsible must be held to account. And Narrative B comes from the Los Angeles Times. This was an incredibly rare tragedy unforeseen by anyone on the film crew. First of all, both Gutierrez, Reed, and Baldwin were told by weapons professionals the gun wasn't loaded. Second, it was Hutchins who told Baldwin to point the gun toward her as she was setting up the camera for a scene. Wrongfully indicting people won't bring Hutchins back and won't serve justice. I, I, I've only ever shot a gun. I went to a shooting range one time. It was pretty, you know, pretty fun. Uh, I get the idea. Uh, not something I need to do all the time, but the I was, you know, it was one of those ones you got to kind of choose the gun you were using and they had a bunch of different pistols. Yeah. And I, it was a 38 special, like a small, someone might keep in their purse or something. The little one I, I picked. And this was at the shooting range. This was for novice people. And they just let you take a gun and the gun went off before I was ready. Luckily, I was holding oh, it in the direction of the shooting range, but I just shot the floor. Like it, it, it had a hair trigger on this beginner's gun. Oh my so God. <laughs> they're nothing to <laughs> mess around with. Yeah. It just, sh- and it was real bullets. It just, I just shot the floor like five feet in front of me in the shooting oh. range, which is why you're not supposed to ever point a gun at someone that you're not intending to, to kill. Yeah. So, um, like never, ever, 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 ever never, ever do that. Rule. Yeah. Yeah. And it really underlined, it was almost a good thing. I mean, I didn't kill anyone. Luckily <laughs> this is for real. Like this is a real thing and guns are to be, handled with the utmost respect and i appreciate that a lot of people who are enthusiastic about guns do handle them with that level of respect um but anyone who doesn't i would stay away from yeah yeah and you you probably should really know what you're doing yeah right and And should you be able to pay twenty dollars and just go fire them off in a range i don't know (laughs) i don't know about that either yeah 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 yeah. Or maybe, maybe uh, let me, I don't want to speak for everyone else. Should I be allowed to pay $20? And the answer is no. That's, that's what we know. <laughs> that's what I can say. A fifth person is confirmed to be cured of HIV. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, ABC News, Forbes, Science Alert, The Hill, and France 24. A man in Dusseldorf, Germany, has been announced by researchers to be cured of HIV through a stem cell transplant. The patient is only the third person to be cured of the condition using the treatment and the fifth individual in history. Referred to as the Dusseldorf patient to protect his privacy, news surrounding the individual's successful treatment had first been announced in 2019. However, researchers could not confirm he had been officially cured at the time. This week's announcement has confirmed that the 53-year-old patient still has no detectable virus in his body capable of infection, despite halting HIV medication four years ago. The patient was diagnosed with HIV in 2008, as well as leukemia in 2011. Stem cell transplants take stem cells from the bone marrow or blood of a donor, replacing a sick patient's own white blood cells. While the findings follow the successful treatments of a man in 2007, as well as a woman last year, researchers have noted that such a transplant is neither low-risk nor an easily scalable procedure. Furthermore, the genetic mutation that protects against HIV is reportedly detected only in a small percentage of people of Northern European descent. The patient said in a statement that he was proud of the worldwide team of doctors that helped cure him of both leukemia and HIV, and revealed that he celebrated the 10-year anniversary of his transplant on Valentine's Day last week. The Prince brings us Narrative A. 
Although not easily scalable, this treatment is still a relevant strategy to potentially help mass remission. With now three patients cured in the long fight against HIV, AIDS, and cancer, another case of viral remission is a reason to have hope for the future. Narrative B comes from nature. Due to the specific nature of the treatment and its high risk, it's unlikely that bone marrow replacement will be rolled out on a larger scale to those who do not have leukemia. While the news is regardless positive, the road to fully curing HIV still promises to be long and difficult, if not impossible. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 40% chance that before the year 2032, a vaccine against HIV-1 will be approved by the U.S., U.K., E.U., or Canada, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. What did you get your honey for Valentine's Day? Was yeah. it uh, was it as grand as a bone marrow transplant and yeah. curing Man. HIV? I got her a um, a candy heart that had Reese's peanut butter cups in it. There you go, chocolate. Yeah, you <laughs> right. know it, and it, it was butter. a yeah, peanut butter. It was a Tuesday. I will. Uh... And I also ate one of the candies yesterday myself. Uh, so is yeah. That... Our final story brings us to Italy as Venice canals run dry amid drought concerns. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Insider, Bloomberg, Independent, and The Guardian. On Monday, Italy's Legambiante Environmental Organization warned that the country's lakes and rivers are facing an extreme lack of water amid growing concerns over another drought, with Venice experiencing unusually low tides after weeks of dry winter weather. With the Alps having received less than 50% of the normal amount of snowfall, along with a lack of rain, a full moon, sea currents, and a high-pressure environment, Venice's canal water levels have fallen so low that gondolas, water taxis, and ambulances face significant navigation challenges. This past weekend, the water levels slumped to 65 centimeters below average, past the minimum mark of 60 centimeters when navigating the canals becomes dangerous. The conditions are a drastic change as Venice typically faces concerns over intense flooding. With the city's worst tidal surge in more than 50 years occurring in 2019, causing more than $1.1 billion in damage. This saw the development of MOES, an anti-flooding project meant to protect the city from tidal surges due to be completed by the end of 2023. The Gambiante also reported low levels in the Po River, which delivers water to northern Italy, with it receiving 61% less water than usual at this time of year. This follows Italy's worst drought in 70 years last summer, which saw the country declare a state of emergency in the regions surrounding Po. Let's start this last round of spins with Narrative A from BBC. Despite being currently afflicted with drought, in the long term, Venice, which evidently faces a host of challenges at the hands of climate change, is most notably threatened by floods. With the possibility of Venice sinking beneath the water as early as 2100, Italy has taken action to save its prized city by enacting the Mose Project which will install 78 automated gates to protect the city from storm surges. Once complete, this will be one of the first mechanisms to aid Venetians in their centuries-long battle against inundation. And Narrative B comes from Bloomberg. Venice isn't only at risk of being inundated by water, but also by millions of tourists who show little appreciation or respect for the city's beauty. 
even when the city is overrun with floodwaters. Elevated dry paths are constructed for their continued enjoyment, while generations of residents face losing their homes. Venetians are battling climate change to preserve their way of life, while tourists roam the city looking for a good time. That narrative B is not exclusive to Venice. People are the worst everywhere, right? Oh, yeah, especially tourists, right? Yeah. We're terrible when we're tourists. The worst. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.